We've been doing a series on the disciplines, and today we bring it to an end. And I, I've enjoyed doing it, and some of you have enjoyed it and brought it up as well. And those of you who didn't, well, all things shall pass. And now this one, after today, it passes. Starting next week, Lord willing, June, July, and August, we will be looking at the book of Hebrews. We'll take a chapter a week. It is all right. This is not Game of Thrones, which I never saw an episode of. I think I'm the, the one. But so we're not going to give, uh, there are no spoilers. Go ahead and read ahead. Read the chapter. Read that again and again and again. What an incredible book. So we start with chapter one next week. And those of you that know math and know how to predict will know how the rest of the other 12 chapters and 12 Sundays will go. But today, the discipline of confession. And as soon as we say confession, we release fear into the room. Some might be afraid that we're talking about some sort of formal, stylized confessions, perhaps not up to, but close to the Roman Catholic style of, of entering a booth and speaking through a mesh to a priest on the other side. That, no, that's, that's not what we're talking about. And others will be concerned because confession is, frankly, uncomfortable at the best of times. It's painful. It reveals something about ourselves that we work so hard to not reveal. It undoes the careful, long-term work we put into that, that outward persona that we want to make ourselves look what we are not so that others will not judge us. And sometimes we're afraid to confess because we're not certain it's safe where we are. And that's something I'd like to bring up just very briefly. When the Bible says faithfulness, we, we generally, just as a reflex, think of our faithfulness to God. And that's a fair thing. That's a good thing to think about and always keep in mind. But very often when the Bible talks about faithfulness and tells us to be faithful, if you look in the context... It's about being faithful to each other. It's about not, not hurting the other one, not revealing what they've told us, but keeping it as a sacred trust. I, I forget who it was. It might be Mark Twain who said, two people can keep a secret if one of them's dead. I know when we talk about confession, you're always concerned that if you say, I'll confess that I have the spirit of, of lust and the person you're talking to says, well, I've had a lifetime problem with gossip. That's a problem. <laughs> Church, we are being called to transcend ourselves in this matter. To hear, to care, not to judge, to love, and to keep it within ourselves. This, this fear of confession goes so far as there are some translators who actually kind of mask it the King James Version of James 5 and verse 16. Confess your faults one to another. Fault is the word I want you to look at. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, when I was a boy, we were so afraid of ever appearing the slightest Catholic that we, we said, no, no, there's no confession of sins here. We confess faults, so it's not, 
It's, it's not specific actual events. We are confessing our weaknesses and tendencies. Really? That's interesting. By the way, I used to preach that because we used the King James just like Paul did. But <laughs> if you look at it, if you look at it in the New International Version, or even if you go to the super accurate version of a terrible text, the, the American Standard Version of 1901, they all say, confess your sins. Because that's what it says. It doesn't just say faults. It says sins. Why is this important? Because you can still find books out there that say the Bible doesn't say specific sins, but faults. That's just not true. We are told to be a people that it is safe to share our sins with. And that's pretty hard to do. It seems that sometimes that we'll do everything we can do to avoid confession. And much of that is because we, are, we live in a shame-based world. Not a grace-based world, but a shame-based world. And we fill it with shame-based religions. Comedians, if you, if you listen to comedians back when you could, when comedy was funny and not political, you go back, and Jewish comedians, you know, and I know what you're thinking, there's a Jewish comedian? Yes, there were many Jewish comedians that have brought such joy to us, and they will talk about the guilt. And you hear Catholic comedians, and they talk about the guilt. The sad thing is religions are based often on guilt and shame. Breaks my heart. And it's entered society, or society has entered the church. I don't know who started it. But you know, even social media, you can say something innocent. But it wasn't phrased the way somebody thinks it should be phrased. And so the social media hounds of hell will leap upon you. And try to drive you from the field. Politicians do it. School friendship groups do it. Communities do it to keep you in line. If you live in a subdivision, homeowners associations will do it. We have an oak tree in our yard. It's a strange one. I like it. It's beautiful. But when the leaves die, they don't go anywhere. Stay right there. And they don't fall down until like April the next year. Then they all just go away. They fall down and if God gives us a wind, it's a neighbor's problem. And then <laughs> it becomes beautiful again. Well, somebody decided to shame us, and we got a letter a year or two ago from the Homeowners Association saying, the evergreen tree in your front yard is dead. Deal with it. I wrote him back, and I said, it's a perfect letter. Yeah, you have every right to write that letter, and we understand your authority in the matter. Two issues. One, we don't have an evergreen tree, and two, that tree's not dead. Take that. It, it's rather hard for me, being libertarian slash contrarian, to live in a subdivision. And to be fair, it's hard for them that I live there. But I, I just don't care for the shame-based stuff at all. And when it comes to religion, I think that it can be traced back, as Richard Foster said. And remember, when we started this series, we were working off of two main books. And Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline was one of them. He, uh, Richard Foster said this. People, uh, this is the way our, our religion seems to be based. People were so bad and so mean and God was so angry with them 
that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Does that sound like what we've been taught? It does. That's the official teaching of many churches, and it leads to shame-based faith that drives home, it's not safe to share, it's not safe to ask for help, it's not safe to admit a brokenness in the depth of your heart. But the cross was not about retribution. It was about love. It was about grace. It was about the character of God. Jesus, who is the express image of God. Spoiler alert, that's next week as well. Took the worst that mankind could do. Took everything we could do, every evil we could do to a person. In the midst of all of that, forgave those who did it while they're doing it. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I want you to think of this picture. Now, I, I can forgive people, and I do rather handily, but sometimes it takes a process to really get there. And here's Jesus. The nails are in him. His back is shredded. He is beyond hungry and thirsty at this stage pain everywhere and people below care nothing about his pain and are gambling for the rags he used to wear and even there his instinct is to forgive God's instinct is not to judge God's instinct his first reflex if I could put it that way his first go-to is forgiveness and by taking it all and dying on the cross Jesus took all the sins we'd ever committed and tossed them to the side. No penance. No probation. All right, I forgive you. But I'm going to have to see some years of clean living without the sin that doesn't tempt me. And then you can go on from there. My goodness. Jesus didn't, he wasn't reluctant. He just forgave and now when the devil wants to accuse us, it's like Jesus steps up, pats us on the back and goes, it's all right, and turns to the devil and says, they're with me. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen, church? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Now, and, and by the way, you can keep on that slide. Uh, I remember who will. You can keep on that slide. How will you not give us all? Think about, just think about what we think sometimes. Oh, I had that thought again. Oh, I said that word again. Oh, I did this again. How can God ever forgive me? You know, he gave his son, but this is bigger. Really? Really? God's bigger than you think. God is immense, and God is love. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? By the way, that includes us. Somebody confesses a sin to us, we don't bring a charge against them. We don't. It is God who justifies. Now that, by the way, that's really an odd set. Who will bring any charge against him? We would expect it to say, it is God who judges. That's not what it says. We're used to that form of language statement fulfilled statement but they, he changes the concept not judges justifies 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think about that. Sometimes Christian people will say, well, you're not Christian. Really? You don't get to draw that line. That's not your job. Who shall, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, that's a clue. Being a Christian does not mean trouble-free or pain-free. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. We don't really put that on the brochure, but that's part of the package. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if Paul had had a mic, he would have dropped it. And the sound guy would have been going, ah, but he would have dropped it. So what does all this have to do with the discipline of confession? Everything. Now we are free to admit our sins, to ask for help. And yes, a word I don't like either, for accountability and for grace. We believe, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. And fall short to the glory of God. Now think about this. That means that we confess our sins to others who are themselves admitted sinners. We're, we're all in the same group here. We're all forgiven. We're all saved with grace. We're all working out our salvation. We're just doing it together. Salvation is an event. But it's also a process. I was baptized when I was 11 years old. But I'm still becoming a Christian. Now, any time between then and now that I would have shuffled off this mortal coil, as Hamlet would have put it, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Macbeth would have, I, 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 I would, um, I'd, I'd go to heaven. But I'm still becoming a Christian. I'm still becoming saved. I, I wish it were faster, but it's happening. And this requires, by the way, understanding this process, it requires a serious and honest self-examination, which is not the same as self-flagellation. If you don't know those words, they're not naughty. It's all right. It means that we acknowledge our, our sins, but we are not required to beat ourselves with a stick over it. We are required to help each other through our sins. We're each, just help. It, it doesn't have to be your sin. We're a fellowship of saints. We're a fellowship of sinners. We are not isolated. We have no need to hide. And that's why on Senior Sunday, which is not about people my age, but people that were graduating from high school, I spoke to the seniors when we still had them here. They have now scattered or been raptured. I'm not really sure what happened. Anyway, 
I turned and spoke to them about the fact that I still personally struggle with every sin they face. Even though some of them might, I might struggle more with than others. Even though I might not sin as much as they do, it's only because it's a matter of energy. They are more mobile, active, and not as recliner-based as I am. And I, I, I feel it's required to say this because I don't want our seniors, I don't want our teens to feel like they're alone. They're not alone. And I don't want them to be surprised when they grow up and find that they're still in process. We did not ask this man for permission to give his name back in the day, long time ago, back when I was um, just in my early 20s. A group of preacher students, I wasn't one of them, but they asked me to, you know, I was there for some reason. They talked to an old Church of Christ guy, written many books, very, very famous, but again, I didn't ask, we didn't ask permission, so I'm not going to use his name. He, he was in his 70s, so we looked upon him as really, you know, half dirt at that stage. He's really gone. And we'd never seen him without a shirt and a tie and a coat and the like. We assumed he, he slept that way. And one of the men asked him, we said, brother, we're really struggling. What do you do? When, when do you get over struggling with lust? And he looked at us and he said, not yet. <laughs> and I, I would love to say that we all sat around and, and, and pondered that theological point. My first thought was, ooh, but <laughs> I got there. I got to the point that... Sorry. Well, that wasn't on the notes, was it? Sorry, sorry. Anyway, um, let's get back to these because Cammie wrote some amazing stuff here. Let's just keep talking. As a community that shares we are struggling, that means we have an absolute belief that Jesus' love and grace are greater than all of our sins as evidenced by the cross and his resurrection. And we're also given the gift of forgiveness. And of course, that means that we're forgiven by Jesus. But there's much more to this. This makes people uncomfortable. I don't know why. We have been given the power to forgive sins. John 20, 23, and 1 Peter 2, 9. If you forgive anyone since, yes, I know he was talking to his followers, his disciples and apostles, but I believe the scripture leads us to us as well. Their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. That's People, we need to be out there forgiven. We need to be actively forgiving because the world's not gone to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are light people, not dark people. We don't throw darkness on social media. We don't throw darkness at each other. We don't throw darkness at the world. We are light. We are the people of forgiveness. We are the safe place. We are the priest who are encouraged to lift each other up and to lift up whoever is in pain along our way. Charles Hodge, not the famous theologian, 
but a wonderful Church of Christ minister from Duncan, Texas, way back in the day, once told a group of men I was with that our problem with confession is, now listen carefully, he's from Texas, so his, his words are a bit difficult to understand. He said, we think your dirt's dirty, mine isn't. And he did a whole weekend on your dirt's dirty, mine isn't. In other words, your sins are, oh, my sins, completely understandable. We want to be, we even want to be judged on our motives, not on our actions. And yet we judge others. You know, there are a lot of things that don't tempt me, frankly. I, I pray for addicts. I, I hurt for addicts. But I don't, I don't get it. Because I've lived with a brain that I never wanted to poke to see what else might happen. It was enough already, an amusement park full of dark rides, that uh, every so often I'd just stop and say, Daddy, make it stop. I never thought, you know what? This thing needs goosing. So <laughs> I, I've never been tempted in this. So if an addict speaks to me, should I be going, oh, well, just, just stop that stop. No, because I've lived with sins my whole life that I've not been able to get out. I am the world's fastest judger of others. And if you think you are, you're wrong. See, I just judged you. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to really work on the love thing. Somebody actually said they, they watched an old video of me. Don't do that. And then they watched one recently, and they said, you say the same things, but you're a lot nicer about it now. I said, well, I hope I'm nicer in another 10 years. I'm trying. My sin is as dirty as your sin, even if it's not the same sin. Even if what tempts you, I don't really guilt, get it all. C.S. Lewis referenced this in his classic Mere Christianity. He said that there are, we all know the laws of human behavior. And when others break those laws, we rise up and demand that justice be done. But when we break the laws, we always have a reason, a justification. Yeah, I did cut in front of you, and I did cut across two lanes of traffic to get over there. But in my defense, I was feeling a little weak and sugar-deprived, and the Krispy Kreme donut sign went on. If you don't know what that means, it means they're warm. And God understands. Yes, I was rude to you in the store, but I have a headache. Yes, and, and again, whatever it is, it's all right. I have a reason. Fact was, if I did that, I'd be a jerk. But we don't want to paint ourselves that way. We want to paint you that way. You know, there are many times that I have I've wanted to, to go on television and do a plea for the nation to send blinker juice to people in Nashville. Because you've obviously w run out of it because you don't ever blink when you turn. Use them. Anyway, I have actually turned a couple of times and realized, oh, I didn't do it either. But I was thinking holy things, so. <laughs> so is confession just a time for us to gather, share our sins and shrug? No, no. When a sin is revealed and shared with the tight-knit community that loves us, it's also a bit harder to commit those sins in the future because you know you're still in that community and they may ask you how you're doing. And that's one of the reasons we share. 
is to become accountable to each other. We don't want to lose the honesty of the gathering, so you're faced with a choice. Start working on control over that sin or leave your community. Don't leave your community. You'll spend your life running. I know people who have changed churches every year or so all of their life because they keep finding problems wherever they go. And I'll look at them and say, the only thing all those churches had in common is you. See that judging again. But it's very valid in this point. It's theologically sound. (laughs) And we talk about the problem with running away is you take you with you. And you might be the problem. You, you just might be. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine. He ran a gun shop. And we were in the gun shop. And he was wearing his gun. And David said, oh, did I tell you, I'm getting married Saturday. And I looked at him and said, David, this is going to be number four. And I said, really? And he said, what, you're not going to be happy for me? I said, I'm just going to say, wouldn't it make more sense every ten years Just find a woman that hates you and buy her a house. (laughs) His hand hovered over the gun, but I'm I'm ready to go see Jesus anyway. And I started talking to him. I said, what are you going to do this time to keep it from ending up the other times? And we talk about that. We need those discussions. But we don't need the judgment in it. We need joy, community, and I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you if you never get control over this. I'm not leaving you if you always, you spend your entire life failing over this. I'm not leaving you because God has not left me. That's what we need in confession. That attitude. Richard Foster said he was struggling over sins and, uh, which by the way made me feel really good. (laughs) Because, oh, he does it too. And he wrote down a list of all of his sins, which are just horrible. And he took it to a man who was his mentor. And he said, I need you to pray over these. And the mentor took them, without looking at them, tore them into little pieces and dropped them in the wastebasket. And Foster said, that's when I learned about forgiveness. I don't need the details. I love you, and I'm not leaving you. The ancient church said confession had three parts. An examination of the conscience, sorrow, and a determination to avoid the sin. That's, that's it. Examining the conscience is necessary. We, we even ask, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Remember that song? Because the, mess- you know, the message that the world gives you is that, uh, let your conscience be your guide. And that's terrible advice. Our conscience has been shaped by our culture and our upbringing. Let's let God be our guide. Let's let Jesus' life and Jesus' stories be our guide. Let's let the community shape us that direction. Don't let your conscience be your guide. You need to examine it. And then sorrow. Confessing that we're sinners and behaving, I'm sorry, believing that God loves us and forgives us is not the same as shrugging and saying, oh, well, what are you going to do? I had a man once that knew who I was, I guess. But he was, um, he, saw, he, he lost his temper and he goes, well, you know, it's okay. You know, my, my mother or something is Irish. Well, that's not quite an excuse. My mother's Irish. He's the nicest person I know. It's not, you, you don't use excuses. You just say, I lost my temper. Shouldn't have done that. That was bad. Sorry. 
I'm sorry. Help me, help me with that. And we'll, and we'll do our best. We, we have a plan. We have a community. I love the phrase Richard Foster uses when he says that the discipline of confession, if we'll put that up, do you have that a little bit? Brings an end to pretense. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. Honesty leads to confession. Confession leads to change. Mark, would you bring your team back up, please? Well, that'd be me too. All right, yeah, okay. I'll step to the side so that you can, you can arrange the gear. How's that? Would you stand, please, with us? Let us remember the words of Christ when he taught us to pray and the warning his brother James gave us. Starting with James chapter 2. Would you read these together? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Then the next, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And then Luke, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Did you see that? Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. May we move to a place in our individual and community lives where that statement carries the full intended weight that Jesus gave it. And the church says...